With the sad death of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II and the accession of our new King, Charles III, this special edition of Look Here for October 2022 examines the concept of endings and beginnings. I'm Pippa Curtis, and with me in the studio today are Jane Fares, Hello. Phil Lee, Hello. and Catherine Neal. Hello. After a reign of over 70 years, Queen Elizabeth II was, for most of us, the only British monarch we have known. But even 70 years is but a moment in the life of our planet. Jane Lush reads a poem by Robert Frost about transience. Nature's first green is gold, her hardest hue to hold. Her early leaf's a flower, but only so an hour. Then leaf subsides to leaf, so Eden sank to grief. So dawn goes down to day. Nothing gold can stay. Robert Frost's poem, Nothing Gold Can Stay, read there by Jane Lush. At the beginning of his book, The Road to Little Dribbling, Bill Bryson tells of how he was curious to find the greatest distance one could travel in Britain in a straight line. Most people would suggest, helpfully, Land's End to John O'Groats. But laying a straight edge across the map, he discovered that the ruler tilted away from Land's End and John O'Groats. The longest straight line actually ends at a lonely Scottish promontory called Cape Roth. The bottom where Bryson started his journey, begins at Bognor Regis. Like so much of coastal Britain, Bognor has seen better days. Once upon a time, happy, well-dressed throngs flocked to the town for carefree weekends. Bognor had a theatre royal, a grand pavilion, with what was said to be the finest dance floor in the south of England and a much-esteemed, if not very accurately named, Curzel, where no one was cured of anything, but patrons could roller-skate to the music of a resident orchestra and afterwards dine beneath giant palms. All that is distant history now. The pier at Bognor survives, but barely. Once it was a thousand feet long, but various owners took to lopping lengths off it following fires or storm damage, so that today it's just a stub, 300 feet long, that doesn't quite reach the sea. For years, Bogner had an annual birdman competition, in which competitors tried to get airborne from the pier end, using various homemade contraptions, bicycles with rockets strapped to the sides and that sort of thing. Invariably, the competitors would travel an amusingly short distance and splash into the water, to the delight of the watching crowds. But eventually, the shortened pier meant that they were crash-landing on sand and shingle in a way that was more alarming than amusing. The competition was cancelled in 2014 and appears now to have moved permanently a few miles down the coast to Worthing, where the prizes are bigger and the pier actually stands over water. In an effort to reverse Bogner's long, gentle decline, in 2005, Arran District Council formed the Bogner Regis Regeneration Task Force, with the goal of bringing £500 million of investment to the town. 
As it became clear that nothing on that scale would ever be forthcoming, the target was quietly reduced, first to 100 million, and then to 25 million. These also proved too ambitious. Eventually, it was decided that a more realistic target was a sum of about zero. When it was realised that that goal had already been reached, the task force was wound up, its work completed. Now, as far as I can tell, all the authorities are doing for Bogner is just keeping it ticking over like a patient on life support. But for all that, Bogner isn't such a bad place. It has a long beach with a curving concrete promenade and a town centre that's compact and tidy, if not thriving. Just inland from the sea is a sylvan retreat called Hotham Park with winding paths, a small boating pond and a toy railway. But that, it must be said, is about it. If you do a web search for things to do in Bognor, Hotham Park is the first thing that comes up. The second suggested attraction is a shop selling mobility scooters. There are two hard things about getting to Cape Roth from the south of England. The first is getting to Cape Roth from the south of England. It's a long way, you see, 700 miles from my back door, according to Google Maps, and involves, at a minimum, a train journey, a car journey, a ferry trip across the lonely Kyle of Durness, and a bouncy ride on a minibus through an uninhabited wilderness. So the logistics take some working out. The second, and even more unsettling part of the undertaking, is determining whether you can get there at all. The Cape Roth website stresses that ferry crossings are subject to the vagaries of tides and weather, which in this part of Scotland can be both disruptive and extreme. The whole of Cape Roth also closes from time to time, apparently without a great deal of notice. When the Ministry of Defence, which owns 25,000 acres there, uses it to practice shooting and blowing things up. On top of all that, the ferry and the minibus services shut for half the year. If you miss the last autumn ferry, you have to wait six months to the next one in spring. My wife called to make a reservation for me. We don't take reservations, the man told her. But it's coming a long way, she said. Everybody who comes up here has come a long way, the man pointed out. Well, what are the chances of him getting on the boat if he just turns up? Oh, he should be OK. We're not that busy at the moment. Well, most days we're not. Sometimes we are. I don't know how to interpret that. If he gets here early, he should be OK. How early? Earlier the better, the man said. And Bye now. And he rang off. I arrived at the ferry landing just after 7.30. The only person there and staked my place at the water's edge. The setting was sensational, the backdrop of monumental hills overlooking the fjord-like Kyle of Durness. The Cape Roth Peninsula, bleak but beckoning, stood half a mile away at the far side of the strait. Birds swooped low over the water. On a distant sandbar, a log stirred to life, a seal, 
and rippled across the beach to the water. At about 8.20, I could see someone across the lock manoeuvring two minibuses, one at a time, into positions at a landing stage over there. And then a whole bunch of people arrived all at once on my side. A minute later, a man with an air of authority arrived also, and everyone crowded round him at the top of the slipway about 20 feet from me. People handed the man money and he issued them with tickets. No one paid any attention to me. I waddled up to the top of the ramp. Excuse me, I was here first, I protested to the man in charge. These people booked, he replied. Now, we need to pause just for a moment. I got up at 5am and travelled two hours to get here. I'd been standing on this spot for an hour. Also, I was about three large cups of coffee short of total mental stability and on the brink of a dangerous medical condition known as caffeine tingle. This was not a good time to trifle with my equanimity. But I tried to book, I said. My wife called and she was told you don't take bookings. You should have booked, he said, and turned to transact business with another customer. I looked hard at the back of his head. I tried to book, you Pictish oaf, I wailed, in the little padded room in my brain I keep for conversations like this. Outwardly and more calmly, I said, but I tried to book. The man told us you don't take bookings. Oh, you must have talked to Angus. I don't remember what name he actually used, but he seemed to think that was an adequate explanation for why I had just travelled all the way from Hampshire to remote Scotland to no purpose. I watched in dismay as he led his charges down the boat ramp and began loading them onto an open boat. I've come 700 miles, I said plaintively. I've come from Calgary, piped up a plumpish woman in a yellow cagoule. Please to outdo me. There's a seat spare, the ferryman said to me. I beg your pardon? You can have that seat if you want it. He nodded at an empty seat. Bewildered but overjoyed, I clambered aboard, lightly but intentionally hitting the Calgary woman on the back of the head with my pack, and took a seat. I paid the ferryman £6.50 for the ticket, and we departed. The journey across the lock took only about five minutes. At the other end, I climbed aboard a waiting minibus, paid the driver an additional £12, and a few minutes later, the bus loaded. We departed up a steep, bumpy track. Cape Roth lay 11 miles away across a barren peninsula. I was going to get there after all. I was very happy again. Cape Roth wasn't actually named for its violent nature. Roth is the old Norse word for turning place, apparently, where Viking ships turned the corner to head for home. But it's plenty wild anyway. Winds can reach 140 miles an hour, we were told. The seas round northern Scotland, where the North Sea and the Atlantic crash together, are said to be the liveliest in the world. In one 19th century storm, a little further east along the coast, a wave struck the top of a lighthouse almost 200 feet above the sea and tore a door off its hinges. That's pretty assertive weather. Our driver was a cheery soul named Reg, 
who kept up a line of patter as he hauled the vehicle round and through potholes. The road to Cape Roth is technically a public highway, the U-70, but it was last paved in 1956 and has more holes than tarmac. It crosses a great empty moorland, lightly scattered with old military trucks and half-tracks put there as targets. It took about an hour to traverse the 11 miles to the Cape, where we were greeted by a big black-and-white lighthouse standing on a cliff high above a blowy sea. The lighthouse was built in 1828 by Robert Stevenson, grandfather of Robert Louis Stevenson. Today, it's automated and doesn't need anyone to operate it. The site has a caretaker named John Ewer, who runs a cafe for visitors in one of the outbuildings, which I was naturally pleased to find. Ewer is the peninsula's sole full-time inhabitant and must spend most of his life as just about the most isolated person in Britain. There's nothing much to do at Cape Roth. The lighthouse is closed to visitors, so all you can do is wander around and enjoy the views or go in the cafe. I stood on the grassy knoll and gazed for some time along the rugged and very beautiful sea cliff stretching off towards far away Dunnet Head. In the eastern distance, just offshore, was a large mass of land, which could only be Hoy, southernmost of the Orkney Islands. I looked later and found that it was 80 miles away. Is it actually possible to see that far? I did a circuit of the lighthouse and then went and stood on the rocky precipice in front of it and cautiously peered over the edge. It's a 300-foot drop to sharp rocks and crashing waves. This really is the end of Britain. Ahead of me, there was nothing but dancing seas all the way to the polar cap. To the left, an equal emptiness to Newfoundland. I stood for a few minutes, reflecting with secret pride that I was the most northwesterly person in Great Britain. How often does anyone get to say that? So, Bill Bryson reckoned that he had experienced, figuratively, the end of Great Britain. But how about, more literally, the end of the world? Writing in Time and Date, Constantin Bikos suggests that, despite countless soothsayers prophesying the end of the world, none of these predictions have actually come true. Which, when you think about it, is pretty obvious, and Mr Bikos would have had some difficulty publishing this article had the world already ceased to exist. Every year, new apocalyptic predictions waft through the dark fringes of the internet and the tabloid media. In the past couple of years, the world was predicted to end in a nuclear war, an asteroid impact, and a new ice age, to name just a few of the more popular prophecies. The pandemic and other recent events may feel apocalyptic, but all that is not really out of the ordinary in historical terms. And despite all of the recent heartbreak, humankind is still around. Still, there's no shortage of fresh end-of-world prophecies, and we all need to be aware of... Computers taking over the world and subjugating the human race. 
with the rise of artificial intelligence and many of us constantly glued to our mobile screens, you may be forgiven for thinking that this prediction has already come true. So let's give the source of the prophecy, famed seer Nostradamus, at least partial credit for this one. But then again, in the underbelly of the internet, it is embellished with all kinds of fantastical details about an army of robots controlled by a single super-intelligent computer brain literally enslaving us. Given that we're still working on perfecting chatbots, that's unlikely to happen anytime soon. Nostradamus also predicts a large meteorite or asteroid will hit the Earth in 2022, exactly like he did for 2021 and for several years before that. Let's just say his track record for predicting major space rock encounters is a little hit and miss. And there's no reason whatsoever to believe that the Yellowstone supervolcano is about to erupt. That's what the experts say. But that doesn't stop the internet from blaring out random predictions that it will do just that in 2022, plunging Earth into a hellscape with millions of deaths. So, do you want to believe people who actually know stuff or people vying for clicks? You decide. If all this has got you worried, have a look at some of the more notorious doomsday scenarios in history that failed to materialise, just like hundreds of other prophecies through the ages. While some of the listed events had tragic consequences for many involved, a look at the track record of prophets and prophecies is a good reminder that there's no need to panic. After all, predicting the end of days is a tricky business. The end of the world was predicted to occur on December the 21st, 2012, when one of the great cycles in the Mayan calendar came to an end. In the run-up to the day, the internet abounded with predictions about an apocalypse. Faced with the wealth of alarmist information available on the World Wide Web, even NASA was compelled to publish an information page about why the world would not end on December the 21st, 2012. The world was also supposed to end on October the 21st, 2011. American radio host Harold Camping had arrived at the date for the apocalypse through a series of calculations that he claimed were based on Jewish feast days and the lunar calendar. In addition to his claims about the end of the world, he also predicted that on May the 21st, 2011, at precisely 6pm, God's elect people would be assumed into heaven in an event he called the Rapture. Those who were not raptured, he said, would have to remain on Earth to wait for their doom five months later. According to the media reports, some of his followers quit their jobs, sold their homes and invested large amounts of money in publicising Camping's predictions. When the rapture did not occur, Camping re-evaluated his predictions, saying that the event would take place simultaneously with the end of the world the self-proclaimed prophet stated that nobody could know exactly when the time the apocalypse would come. Scientists used the Large Hadron Collider, LHC, near Geneva, Switzerland, to set up controlled collisions of particles at very high speeds. 
The experiments have caused some to believe that the energies set free by the collisions will form a black hole powerful enough to consume Earth and all life on it. No such black hole has been sighted yet, and several high-profile studies have concluded that there are no such dangers associated with the experiments conducted at the LHC. Towards the end of the second millennium, people around the world feared that the world would end simultaneously with the beginning of the year 2000, or Y2K. This prediction was based on the practice followed by computer programmers of abbreviating year numbers with two digits when developing software. For instance, 1999 would be coded as 99. At the turn of the century, computers would revert to naught naught, assuming that the date was 1900 instead of 2000 and leading to software errors. According to popular belief, this so-called millennium bug threatened banking systems, planes, even the safety of weapons systems, leading to an all-consuming chaos on planet Earth. However, at midnight on January the 1st, 2000, the world celebrated the new year and no planes dropped from the sky. Housewife Dorothy Martin claimed to have received a message from Planet Clarion in the early 1950s. The world was to end in a great flood before dawn on December the 21st, 1954. Martin and a group of followers were convinced that a flying saucer would rescue the true believers before the inevitable destruction of Earth. The belief was so strong that some broke completely with their previous lives, quitting their jobs, leaving their spouses and giving away money and possessions. Social psychologists Leon Festinger, Henry Riken and Stanley Schachter infiltrated Martin's group to study the effects of such convictions and the group's reactions when the prophesied event did not occur. Their work, when prophecy fails delivers the first instance of Festinger's noted theory of cognitive dissonance. And so finally back to Nostradamus, who prophesied 250 years ago that a king of terror would come from the sky in 1999. Austrian geologist and Nostradamus buff Alexander Tolman decided to play it safe by sitting it out in a self-built bunker in Austria. Tolman was convinced that the apocalypse was to come early in August, a fear that was consolidated by the total solar eclipse on August the 11th, 1999. A spectacular cosmic event, true, but not exactly the end of everything that the doomsayers seem to be quite keen on. In the first quarter of that century, however, the world experienced a series of events that did indeed spell the end of everything that so many held dear. The Great War. Phil. Until fairly modern times, the only conflict in war was that to be found on the battlefield. The decisive battle won the war, and that battle was brought to a close when a defeated army left the field, usually as fast as it could, beaten by superior tactics, better military leaders or overwhelming numbers. But gradually, over the course of the 1800s, things changed. 
As weapons became more complex and destructive thanks to the Industrial Revolution, the realisation grew that to win a war, the victors must ensure that not only was their military force superior, but that their industry could produce more and better armaments and that their propaganda ensured that all their citizens be committed to the fight. Thus was the Great War of 1914 to 1918 the first total war, no longer involving simply soldiers and sailors, but the whole population, ordinary people now exposed to aerial bombing from zeppelins and later from bomb-dropping aircraft. There was naval shelling of Scarborough, and German U-boat submarines sought to sink shipping to bring about a shortage of key materials, hunger and a loss of morale. The British conducted the war in a similar fashion, though did not directly set out to kill civilians in Germany. This explains the sheer awfulness of the Great War. It was not the longest war, but it was the most intense, and the nature of it for Britain and its allies was encapsulated in the word attrition. This meant that the longer the war went on, the more Germany and its allies would be at a disadvantage, because the allies could call upon more men and greater industrial output. Germany and her allies would run short of fighting men, food and resources first. These setbacks would open up political differences within Germany. Morale might collapse. If the British couldn't win in the short term on the battlefield, they could win by avoiding defeat in the long run. If the Germans couldn't win quickly, they wouldn't win at all. We're looking here at endings. This was the war to end all wars. This was Armageddon. How did it end? That's a very complex story, but we can distill the essence of it. When the Russians surrendered to Germany in March 1918, before American troops went into action on the Western Front, Germany's hopes were high. But their spring offensive fizzled out after early gains. Supplies ran short. Men started to surrender. At home, civil war looked likely. When the German people was told that defeat was imminent, the shock shattered their spirit. Germany would surrender in order to avoid an invasion. It was over. In many ways, this seemed like an ending. Monarchy in Germany, Austria, Russia was overthrown. Communism devoured Russia, and for a time Hungary and parts of Germany too. The general pre-war optimism that science would bring nothing but progress and understanding had been shattered by high explosives, tanks and poison gas. Ethnic groups across Europe found themselves living in new states, Austrians in Italy, Germans in Czechoslovakia. The Middle East saw the chaotic settlement of their area by the victorious European powers extending their influence, setting in train some of the problems we still see there today. And in Europe, a generation of young men and their families have been afflicted with death, injury and trauma. So, was this an ending? Not really, no. The Great War would soon be relabeled simply the First World War. Not the end of all wars, because of the failures of the peace treaties that ended it, and the deep-seated resentments that built up, not only amongst the defeated, but also amongst those apparent victors, such as France and Italy, who failed to acquire the fruits of victory that they felt they deserved. The questions that remain are not so much who won the war, or even why, but did anyone really win at all? And it reminds us that endings are not always what they seem. The forces set loose by events like war are very hard to bring to a conclusion. The First World War and its aftermath guided us towards the Second and beyond. Perhaps we'd better agree with the communist Chinese politician who, when asked what he thought was the effect of the French Revolution of 1789, replied, it's really too early to tell. <laughs> Thank you.
potentially disastrous events in one's private life can, nevertheless, prompt a change for the better, as Paula Kokotza discovered when she spoke to Suzanne Watkins for The Guardian. Catherine. This article is entitled New Start at 60. Sometimes, when she reaches the sanctuary of her hotel room after 24 hours on duty, Suzanne Watkins finds herself laughing uncontrollably. This has happened in South Korea, Guam, Japan and Ireland, all since last November, when on her 60th birthday she passed her flight attendant training. I knew the only way I could explore the world economically was to get paid to fly, she says, and I knew I had to do it at 60 because I didn't want to do it at 70. Watkins works long haul at short notice with an ad hoc schedule. The lifestyle would horrify some, but she says she feels most at peace with myself when I am a stranger in a strange land and I am wandering. So she's given up her rented apartment downsized and squeezed everything she owns into a five-foot-by-ten-foot storage unit. And that's all I have, she says. It's exciting, not knowing where I'm going, what I'm going to do. She stays with friends and family when she's not travelling. After Watkins and her husband divorced in 2008, she always knew where she was going. She raised their daughter, then 14, and son, eight, as a single parent in Sebastopol, California. Economically, I scrambled. I had three minimum wage jobs. These included working in a toy shop and planning travel for non-profit school organisations. Life settled into a necessary pattern. You drive to the office, you sit at a computer all day, you go home, sleep and do it all over again. But a new start was just around the corner. In 2018, she was taken to ER with a life-threatening sepsis infection. They had to remove half my intestines. It made me realise that I'm mortal, she says. Sometimes that's what it takes. After the surgery, Watkins recovered at home, and for the first time in a decade, her relentless working rhythm was put on pause. I saw things I'd never even seen in my own home before, noticing the lamp on the ceiling or the birds outside. I'd never taken the time. One day in this frame of mind, she was listening to the radio. Entrepreneur Chip Conley was talking about his new project, Modern Elder Academy, which is billed as a midlife wisdom school in Baja California, Mexico. Watkins applied for a scholarship. As a single mum, it was the only way I could do it. She'd had an unsettled, anxious childhood. She loved looking through National Geographic magazine, which was always on the coffee table, but her parents were not travellers in any way, though the family moved a dozen times. Watkins sent off her brochures about places, but never went, and drew pictures of aeroplanes. At university, she studied geography. Once she got to Modern Elder Academy, she realised she needed to find a job that involved travel. When the pandemic shut the skies in 2020, Watkins read of flight attendants being laid off. Counterintuitively, Her own plans grew wings. She applied to be a flight attendant and graduated after five weeks of training. I don't want to have any regrets on my deathbed. So I wake up every morning and I say, if today was my last day, would I be okay?" And I say, yes. Before her illness, she says, I was complacent. 
And complacency and old age, it doesn't work. It's not uplifting. I think it's important as an older adult to keep pushing the limits. Don't think of your life linearly. She opens out her hands. Think of it as continuing to unfold and you can have surprises and joy. Her children, too, appreciate her differently. I think they saw me as afraid, not a risk-taker, when they were younger. Now they've seen me go through a lot of transformation. I can finally be a role model for them to show that it's OK to follow your heart. Anna Howard Shaw had two major new starts in her early life. Having moved from Newcastle-upon-Tyne in 1851 to America, and then again four years later, aged 12, to Michigan, where her father had claimed a vast tract of heavily forested land with the dream of establishing a colony there. With no practical knowledge of farming, or indeed homesteading in general, he and his oldest son James had cleared a space in the wilderness just large enough for a log cabin and put up the bare walls of the cabin itself. Then he returned to the town of Lawrence and his work, leaving son James behind. A few months later, while her father stayed on for 18 months back in Lawrence, Shaw and her mother, along with her two sisters, Eleanor and Mary, and her youngest brother, Henry, set out to join James in the remote Michigan cabin. As we made the last stage of our journey, our hearts filled with the joy of nearing our new home. We all had an idea that we were going to a farm and we expected some resemblance, at least, to the prosperous farms we had seen in New England. My mother's mental picture was naturally of an English farm. Possibly she had visions of red barns and deep meadows, sunny skies and daisies. What we found awaiting us were the four walls and the roof of a log house, standing in a small, cleared strip of the wilderness. Its doors and windows represented by square holes, its floor also a thing of the future, its whole effect achingly forlorn and desolate. It was late in the afternoon when we drove up to the opening that was its front entrance, and I shall never forget the look my mother turned upon the place. Without a word, she crossed its threshold, and standing very still, looked slowly around her. Then something within her seemed to give way, and she sank upon the ground. She could not realise even then, I think, that this was really the place Father had prepared for us, that here he expected us to live. When she finally took it in, she buried her face in her hands, and in that way she sat for hours without moving or speaking. For the first time in her life she had forgotten us, and we, for our part, dared not speak to her. We stood around her in a frightened group, talking to one another in whispers. Our little world had crumbled under our feet. Never before had we seen our mother give way to despair. Like most men, my dear father should never have married. Though his nature was one of the sweetest I have ever known, and though he would at any call give his time to or risk his life for others, in practical matters he remained to the end of his days as irresponsible as a child. Thus, when he took up his claim of 360 acres of land in the wilderness of northern Michigan, 
He gave no thought to the manner in which we were to make the struggle and survive the hardships before us. He had furnished us with land and the four walls of a log cabin. Some day, he reasoned, the place would be a fine estate, which his sons would inherit, and in the course of time pass on to their sons. Always an Englishman's most iridescent dream. That, for the present, we were 100 miles from a railroad, 40 miles from the nearest post office, and half a dozen miles from any neighbours, save Indians, wolves and wildcats, that we were wholly unlearned in the ways of the woods as well as in the most primitive methods of farming, that we lacked not only every comfort but even the bare necessities of life had no weight in my father's mind. Even if he had witnessed my mother's despair on the night of our arrival in our new home, he would not have understood it. We faced our situation with clear and unalarmed eyes the morning after our arrival. The problem of food, we knew, was at least temporarily solved. We had brought with us enough coffee, pork and flour to last for several weeks. And the one necessity Father had put inside the cabin walls was a great fireplace made of mud and stones in which our food could be cooked. The problem of our water supply was less simple but my brother James solved it for the time by showing us a creek a long distance from the house. And for months we carried from this creek, in pails, every drop of water we used, save that which we caught in troughs when the rain fell. We held a family council after breakfast, and in this, though I was only twelve, I took an eager and determined part. I loved work. It has always been my favourite form of recreation and my spirit rose to the opportunities of it, which smiled on us from every side. Obviously, the first thing to do was to put doors and windows into the yawning holes Father had left for them, and to lay a board flooring over the earth inside our cabin walls. And these duties we accomplished before we had occupied our new home a fortnight. There was a small sawmill nine miles from our cabin, on the spot that is now Big Rapids, and there we bought our lumber. The labour we supplied ourselves, and though we put our hearts into it, and the results at the time seemed beautiful to our partial eyes, I am forced to admit, in looking back upon them, that they halted this side of perfection. We began by making three windows and two doors. Then, inspired by these achievements, we ambitiously constructed an attic and divided the ground floor with partitions, which gave us four rooms. The division of labour planned at the First Council was that Mother should do our sewing and my older sisters, Eleanor and Mary, the housework. My brothers and I would do the work out of doors, an arrangement that suited me very well, though at first, owing to our lack of experience, our activities were somewhat curtailed. It was too late in the season for ploughing or planting, even if we possessed anything with which to plough. And, moreover, our so-called cleared land was thick with sturdy tree stumps. Even during the second summer, ploughing was impossible. We could only plant potatoes and corn and follow the most primitive method in doing even this. We took an axe, chopped up the sod, put the seed under it and let the seed grow. The seed did grow, too, in the most gratifying and encouraging manner. Our green corn and potatoes were the best I've ever eaten but at first we lacked these luxuries. We had, however, in their place large quantities of wild fruit, 
gooseberries, raspberries and plums, which Harry and I gathered on the banks of our creek. Harry also became an expert fisherman. We had no hooks or lines, but he took wires from our hoop skirts and made snares at the end of poles. My part of this work was to stand on a log and frighten the fish out of their holes by making horrible sounds, which I did with impassioned earnestness. When the fish hurried to the surface of the water to investigate the appalling noises they had heard, they were easily snared by our small boy, who was very proud of his ability to contribute in this way to the family table. When I was 14, I began to feel the call of my career. For some reason, I wanted to preach, to talk to people, to tell them things. Just why, just what, I did not yet know, but I had begun to preach in the silent woods, to stand up on stumps and address the unresponsive trees, to feel the stir of aspiration within me. When he eventually joined us, I said to my father, Father, someday I'm going to college. I can still see his slight, ironical smile. It drove me to a second prediction. I was young enough to measure success by material results. So I added, recklessly, and before I die, I shall be worth $10,000. The Shaws were one of the earliest families to settle in that part of Michigan and their simple log cabin would have occupied a very tiny part of what has now grown into the city of Big Rapids, with a population of over 10,000. True to her vocation, Anna went on to become a preacher, receiving ordination in the Methodist Protestant Church in 1880. She was a key mover in the women's suffragette movement, and a statue of her was erected next to Big Rapids Community Library in 1988. Lake Michigan Huron itself is fed from Lake Superior and is the largest body of fresh water in the world. A rather more modest expanse is our own River Severn, which has, nevertheless, its own claim to fame. Jane has been looking at the Severn's journey from beginning to end. The River Severn is the longest river in Britain, almost 220 miles long. Where does it start? Or, I should say, she start, as all rivers are she. Well, the answer is in the boggy marshlands of the slopes of Plinlimon, in the Cambrian Mountains of Mid-Wales. This is less than 15 miles from the Welsh coast, at an elevation of 750 metres above sea level. At this elevation, the rainfall is high, over 2,500 millilitres a year. The ground acts like a sponge, and the runoff starts as tiny trickles, then rivulets, which join to form a stream which gradually gets bigger until it runs down through the landscape to form a V-shaped valley. As it runs, it carries detritus with it, some of which dissolve in the water, but other things, like big stones and rocks, erode the landscape. It's getting bigger all the time, with the power to carry material with it which has been stripped from the land. Some has been suspended in the flow, some carried along by the flow rate and gravity, all that's required to erode the landscape. At the end of the summer, the river is now flowing at 1,000 litres per second. It now reaches a waterfall, the Seven Breaks Its Neck waterfall. There are several ways in which waterfalls are formed, and the most common way is where there is a difference in rock type 
with one stronger band lying on top of a weaker band. The water falling will erode the weaker rocks. Over time, the waterfall cuts back and eventually a gorge is formed. After the waterfall, the river flattens out and wanders through a landscape of agricultural land, forming loops of all shapes and sizes on the valley floor, known as meanders. The outside of the bends, the water is flowing strongly. This is cutting into the landscape. On the inside of the bends, more of what the river is carrying with it is being deposited because the water is flowing more slowly. The erosion has formed a very small neck on the meander. The fast-moving stream will continue to erode the banks on the outside of the bend and will erode the area around the meander neck. Thus, the river will break through, cutting through the meander, and forms an oxbow lake. After Shrewsbury, the river drops through the Ironbridge Gorge and swings south. Although the river's mouth is over 100 kilometres away, it's only 30 metres above sea level. The river is now flowing at over 60,000 litres of water a second. Because it's mainly surrounded by flat land, floods are a significant threat. In November 2000, Heavy rain caused some of the worst flooding since records began. Many rivers, including the Severn, burst their banks and caused widespread disruption and damage. In the past, people have been clever at avoiding this. In Worcester, the cathedral and the old town were built on a river terrace away from the river and thus much higher. Out of reach of the flood waters, but as the town began to expand, with more people to accommodate, the floodplain was and is being built on closer to the river. Building on a floodplain changes how the land works. When rain falls on open countryside, land acts as a sponge. If the land is built on, then the tarmac and paving stop the water seeping into the soil. It then drains through pipes and into the river. OK in normal times, but when it's very wet... That can tip the balance and cause the river to flood. No one seems to have an answer. We still keep building. After the river leaves Gloucester, it becomes wider. Flooding decreases and it quickly develops into an estuary two kilometres wide. South of the bridge, it's even wider. It's one of the biggest estuaries in the UK. The river here is tidal and has the second largest tidal range in the world. The difference between the high watermark and the low watermark can be as much as 15 metres. When the tide is out, huge expanses of mud flats are exposed. Western Supermare, do I hear? Many rivers in the UK, like the Thames and the Humber and the Forth, end in a wide estuary, and you need a long bridge to get from one side to the other. Here on the Severn, there are two. South of the bridges, the river is much deeper and ships can come in. Thus, many industries have taken advantage of the cheap land on each side. Half a million cars pass through Royal Portbury Dock every year. By the time the river reaches its mouth, it is 13 kilometres wide and carries 9 billion litres of water a day.
house was a square brick building with wings of a bare and unfurnished appearance. All about it was so very quiet that I said to Mr Mel, I supposed the boys were out, but he seemed surprised at my not knowing that it was holiday time, that all the boys were at their several homes, that Mr Creakle, the proprietor, was down by the seaside with Mrs and Miss Creakle, and that I was sent in holiday time as a punishment for my misdoing, all of which he explained to me as we went along. I gazed upon the schoolroom into which he now took me as the most forlorn and desolate place I had ever seen. I see it now, a long room with three long rows of desks and six of forms and bristling all round with pegs for hats and slates. Scraps of old copybooks and exercises litter the dirty floor. Some silkworms' houses made of the same materials are scattered over the desks. Two miserable little white mice, left behind by their owner, are running up and down in a fusty castle made of pasteboard and wire, looking in all the corners with their red eyes for anything to eat. A bird in a cage very little bigger than himself makes a mournful rattle now and then in hopping on his perch, two inches high or dropping from it, but neither sings nor chirps. There is a strange unwholesome smell upon the room, like mildewed corduroy, sweet apples wanting air, and rotten books. There could not well be more ink splashed about it if it had been roofless from its first construction, and the skies had rained, snowed, hailed, and blown ink through the varying seasons of the year. Mr Mel, having left me while he took his boots upstairs, I went softly to the upper end of the room, observing all this as I crept along. Suddenly I came upon a pasteboard placard, beautifully written, which was lying on the desk and bore these words, Take care of him, he bites. I got upon the desk immediately, apprehensive of at least a great dog underneath, but though I looked all round with anxious eyes, I could see nothing of him. I was still engaged in peering about when Mr Mel came back and asked me what I did up there. I beg your pardon, sir, says I, if you please... I'm looking for the dog. Dog, he says. What dog? Isn't it a dog, sir? Isn't what a dog? That's to be taken care of, sir, that bites. No, Copperfield, says he gravely. That's not a dog. That's a boy. My instructions are, Copperfield, to put this placard on your back. I'm sorry to make such a beginning with you, but I must do it. With that, he took me down and tied the placard, which was neatly constructed for the purpose, on my shoulders like a knapsack. And wherever I went afterwards, I had the consolation of carrying it. What I suffered from that placard, nobody can imagine. Whether it was possible for people to see me or not, I always fancied that somebody was reading it. It was no relief to turn round and find nobody, for wherever my back was, there I imagined somebody always to be. That cruel man with a wooden leg aggravated my sufferings. He was in authority and if he ever saw me leaning against a tree or a wall or the house, he roared out from his lodge door in a stupendous voice, "'Hello, you, sir, you, Copperfield. Show that badge conspicuous, or I'll report you.' The playground was a bare gravelled yard open to all the back of the house and the offices. I knew that the servants read it, and the butcher read it, and the baker read it, that everybody, in a word, who came backwards and forwards to the house of a morning when I was ordered to walk there, read that I was to be taken care of, for I bit. I recollect that I positively began to have a dread of myself as a kind of wild boy who did bite. There was an old door in this playground on which the boys had a custom of carving their names. 
It was completely covered with such inscriptions. In my dread of the end of the vacation and their coming back, I could not read a boy's name without inquiring in what tone and with what emphasis he would read, Take care of him, he bites. There was one boy, a certain J. Steerforth, who cut his name very deep and very often, who I conceived would read it in a rather strong voice and afterwards pull my hair. There was another boy, one Tommy Traddles, who I dreaded would make a game of it and pretend to be dreadfully frightened of me. There was a third, George Demple, who I fancied would sing it. I have looked a little shrinking creature at that door until the owners of all the names, there were five and forty of them in the school then, Mr Mel said, seemed to send me to Coventry by general acclamation and to cry out, each in his own way, "'Take care of him, he bites!' It was the same with the places at the desks and forms. It was the same with the groves of deserted bedsteads I peeped at on my way to, and when I was in, my own bed. I remember dreaming night after night of being with my mother as she used to be, or of going to a party at Mr Peggotty's, or of travelling outside the stagecoach, or of dining again with my unfortunate friend the waiter. monotony of my life and in my constant apprehension of the reopening of the school, it was such an insupportable affliction. I had long tasks every day to do with Mr Mel, but I did them, there being no Mr and Miss Murdstone here, and got through them without disgrace. Before and after them I walked about, supervised, as I have mentioned, by the man with a wooden leg. How vividly I call to mind the damp about the house, the green cracked flagstones in the court, an old leaky water butt and the discoloured trunks of some of the grim trees which seem to have dripped more in the rain than other trees and to have blown less in the sun. At one we dined, Mr Mel and I, at the upper end of a long bare dining room full of deal tables and smelling of fat. Then we had more tasks until tea, which Mr Mel drank out of a blue teacup and I out of a tin pot. All day long and until seven or eight in the evening, Mr Mel, at his desk in the schoolroom, worked hard with pen, ink, ruler books and writing paper, making out the bills, as I found, for last half year. When he had put up his things for the night, he took out his flute and blew at it, until I almost thought he would gradually blow his whole being into the large hole at the top and ooze away at the keys. I picture my small self in the dimly lighted rooms, sitting with my head upon my hand, listening to the doleful performance of Mr Mel and conning tomorrow's lessons. I picture myself with books shut up, still listening to the doleful performance of Mr Mel and listening through it to what used to be at home and to the blowing of the wind on Yarmouth flats and feeling very sad and solitary. I picture myself going up to bed among the unused rooms and sitting on my bedside, crying for a comfortable word from Peggotty. I picture myself coming downstairs in the morning and looking through a long, ghastly gash of a staircase window at the school bell, hanging on top of an outhouse with a weathercock above it, and dreading the time when it shall ring Jay Steerforth and the rest to work which is only second in my foreboding apprehensions to the time when the man with a wooden leg shall unlock the rusty gate to give admission to the awful Mr Creakle. I cannot think I was a very dangerous character in any of these aspects, but in all of them I carried the same warning on my back. Mr Mel never said much to me, but he was never harsh to me. 
I suppose we were company to each other without talking. I forgot to mention that he would talk to himself sometimes and grin and clench his fist and grind his teeth and pull his hair in a most unaccountable manner. But he had those peculiarities, and at first they frightened me, though I soon got used to them. David Copperfield's first day at his new school. Thank you, Phil. In our audio playhouse this month, a fledgling writer starts to find his feet in the commercial world of journalism and publishing, in part one of John Stanbury's Making the News. Good morning, Plankton Observer. My office, Billy Fish. My office, now. Monday morning in the newsroom of the Plankton Observer and the editor-in-chief, Fred Hackman, was not in a good mood. Shut the door. What's this? Can't read a word of it. Even if I could, it's rubbish. How long have you been on this paper? Six months? Six minutes? Who the hell in Dorset's interested in dung beetles, for crying out loud? Well, sir, I... Was it last week, a nature ramble in the car park? Look. Find me some decent stories, Billy Fish. Something meaningful, something relevant, something to make him take notice, for heaven's sake. Big stories that even the nationals don't have. That's what we need. This paper's laying an egg as it is. Never mind your silly parochial nonsense that nobody reads. Yes, sir. I just thought that being just a local painter... Vision, Billy Fish, vision. Expand your mind, son. Think broad, not deep. This may be just a local paper, as you put it. That doesn't mean we can't ever beat the big boys to it. No, sir. One more scratty dung beetle story and you're out. Understand me, Billy Fish? Yes, sir. Thank you, sir. And, Billy Fish, while you're about it, sort out your wretched handwriting, will you? I can't read a word of this, this scribble. Looks like some in your damn dung beetle left behind. Yes, sir. Sorry, sir. Only when I started working here that there wasn't a spare typewriter. So Billy I... Fish, this is a newspaper office. I'd have thought that even you could find a typewriter here somewhere. Have you looked? Well, yes, sir. But... So look again. Out of my sight, Billy Fish. Out of my sight. Lionel Billyfish hadn't intended to be a journalist. He would have much preferred to have written novels. His father wasn't impressed. No one employs novelists, son. You can write your whole lifetime and never get a thing published. Novelists can get a break, Dad. And meanwhile, you'll be broke. Don't expect your mother and me to keep you. Get a job, a proper job. Here. You can write for the Plankton Observer. Fred Hackman owes me a favour or two. I'll see he takes you on as a reporter. You've got an appointment with him tomorrow morning. I've put in a word. Lionel was sure that Hackman wouldn't want him anyway, but not so. He was put on births, marriages and deaths, which in a strange way somehow appealed to his sense of narrative, and he quite enjoyed writing up the lives of the lesser-known inhabitants of this corner of the West Country, which was served by the Plankton Observer. But despite Lionel's regular and unctuous celebrations of the county's newly deceased, the Observer's circulation still failed to balance its expenses and it wasn't long before Lionel found himself one of the only three remaining members of staff. You're going to have to do some proper news, Billy Fish. Go and chase some ambulances, interview some councillors, you know the kind of thing. Chasing ambulances wasn't Lionel's kind of thing at all. 
and none of the local councillors dared to be interviewed by the son of their chief benefactor. So Lionel focused on natural history. At least dung beetles are not controversial, he thought. At tea time that night, Lionel's mum was gossiping about their neighbours. I put it to her straight, I did, but she denied every word. Not fooling me. She can deny what she wants, but I know it's true. You do, don't you? You just know it's true when they deny it. Tea? She filled Lionel's Royal Dorchester teacup from her Royal Dorchester teapot. Oh, look. This lid's chipped. Arthur, can we get a new one from the works? They're still making them. That'll be the next thing you'll see. The ceramic works will close and we'll end up having to buy a whole new dinner service from somewhere else for the sake of that one chipped lid. You mark As he stirred his tea, Lionel's mind drifted back over what his mother had been saying. Politicians deny everything, especially when it's true. He could write a novel about that. He could even... No, he thought that would be unethical. But on the other hand, the editor-in-chief wants a story. He can have a story. Lionel took his tea up to his bedroom. By midnight, he had finished, in his very best handwriting, an article for The Observer about a local councillor denying that the Royal Dorchester Ceramic Works were closing. No one had suggested that they were, and none of the local councillors would have wanted to speak to him anyway on such a trumped-up idea. But it was an interesting idea. Lots of local jobs depended on the ceramic works. Fred Hackman was not in his office the following morning so Lionel just left the sheets on the editor's desk. What have you got there? Brian Collum came in to leave some typewritten sheets of his own. Another lemon for the nature page, Nelly? <laughs> You're still writing by hand? You know old Hack hates that straw. Why don't you get yourself a proper typewriter? I looked for one. Mr Hackman told me to, but there aren't any. Yeah, of course there are. Stan had an old typewriter there before he got ill. He left it in the storeroom when he went. But I looked in the storeroom. Nah, it's in there, all right. Try on top of the boiler with the Playboy magazines. You know where they are, Nell, don't you? Well, no, not... If you can reach. Perhaps you should climb on a chair. Mind you don't fall off. Oh, and you better take those pages off Hack's desk before he sees them. But even having checked through each of the Playboy magazines, Lionel still couldn't find Stan's old typewriter. He was about to give up and switch off the light in the storeroom when he noticed a dusty cardboard box right next to the door. Well, that wasn't there before. He picked it up. Well, there it was. An old typewriter, just like Colm had said. Lionel carried it back to his desk. He got a sheet of paper from the stationery cupboard and put it into the machine. The roller wouldn't turn. He pressed some of the keys. One or two still worked, but most refused to move. How did Stan ever write anything on this? Lionel settled down to try and fix it. His boss had gone to the dentist that morning and had rung in to say he was taking the rest of the day off. So Lionel decided to take Stan's old typewriter home to refurbish it. He put it on the kitchen table and took a good look at the mechanism. Something was jamming the roller. A piece of paper. 
not surprisingly. Gently, he teased it out. It tore several times, but eventually the pieces lay on the table and the roller functioned once more. Encouraged, Lionel fetched the oil can from the garage and set about freeing up the keys. Some of the individual letters didn't line up properly and it was missing the Z, but as long as he steered clear of stories about zebras and ziggurats, it would do just fine. By the time his mum came home, the machine was looking almost new. Above the elaborately lettered manufacturer's name, Amaretti, glittered the remains of a coat of arms in real gold leaf. That's a fine old machine, Lionel. Where'd you get that? I found it at work, in the storeroom. I've just cleaned it up and got it working. Lovely job. Didn't know you could type. (sighs) I can't. He started picking up the bits of paper he'd pulled out from the roller. They were already typewritten. He pieced them together and read, Be careful what you type. Many lies are written as truth. Many truths are written as lies. Many lies become truth. That's a bit deep for Aunt Stan. Lionel went up to his room to have a go at typing the story about the ceramic works. He found it much easier than he'd expected. His fingers very quickly got to know where to find the various letters of the alphabet, to the point where he was able to type the byline Lionel Billyfish at the bottom of the last page without looking at the keys at all. Brian Collum came out of Fred Hackman's office and made straight for Lionel's desk. You're for it, Nell. The old man wants you in his office. He's not happy. (laughs) Again. What in the name of blazes is this drivel? Sir, I... Where did you get this story? I know this town and I know the ceramic works and they'll never close. Not in my lifetime, son, nor yours, believe me. And anyhow, Councillor Thong's got no say in what happens there, nor anywhere for that matter. You say he's denying it? Of course he's denying it. There's not a word of... Hackman. Ah, hello, Charlie. Yes. What? The what? Um, well, yes, I heard. Well, that young reporter, Billyfish, of course. No, no, of course not. No, I wouldn't dream... Where did you get that story? That was Charlie Thong, Councillor Charlie Thong. You were wrong, Billy Fish. Your story, I'm sorry to inform you, is inaccurate. Lionel felt a sudden void in his stomach and his face turned a deep red. Rumbled, fallen at the first hurdle. He must have been a complete idiot ever to think he'd get away with pulling off a stunt like that. Your story, interesting as it is, Billy Fish, is not true. His career was over. His life on the scrap heap. Councillor Thong is not denying, not to me at least, that the ceramic works are going to close. They are. The management board will be making an announcement in a couple of days. Redundancy notices will be issued by the end of the week. Until then, he demands that we keep a lid on it. If we hear anything, he wants us to scotch the rumours, to give the shareholders a chance to sell before the price drops through the floor. So we won't be printing the story, sir? Won't be printing. Won't be printing? 
Are you mad? Have you no news sense? Of course we're printing it. It's the biggest scoop this rag's had in decades. Not only hundreds of jobs on the line, but a councillor keeping it quiet for the benefit of the shareholders. Dynamite! Over the next few days, Lionel tried to come to terms with the incredible coincidence that had led to this unexpected triumph. Or was it perhaps some sixth sense that had prompted the implausible story in his mind? There had been no talk of financial problems at the works, no reason he knew of for the business to close. He felt sorry for the 900 staff and auxiliary workers who now faced a difficult future. But their cloud was his silver lining. Are things at last looking up for Lionel Billyfish? We'll find out in part two of Making the News later in the magazine. And while we're looking at storytelling, Phil has been rifling through our collection of literature in Talking Books. This month I'm looking at The Visitor by Lee Child. I'll begin, unusually, with a gentle warning. This audiobook is not for the faint-hearted or for the easily offended. I justify its selection, though, on the basis of the popularity and endurance of Lee Child's Jack Reacher novels and on my continued search for variety within the stock of audiobooks that we keep at Colin Chance House. Also, I have, myself, enjoyed several of the books in the series. This is the fourth... Jack has left his long-time commitment to the US Army, 30 years in the military police, as well as an army childhood spent around the world on US bases. He's a loner and a wanderer, and trouble finds him with an unerring accuracy, making calls on his cynical, fearless and forensic qualities. He is not, as we discover, one to look the other way when danger threatens. In this story, we'll travel the United States, starting with an apparently harmless dinner in an Italian restaurant in New York City, moving to the upstate town of Garrison and thence via the FBI facility in Quantico, Virginia, the state of New Jersey, and back to New York. Along the way, we encounter Jody. She's Reacher's girlfriend and a finance lawyer who is called out when Reacher is arrested by the FBI at their Garrison home after a dramatic stakeout. Reacher is alleged to have assaulted two protection racketeers who were trying to extort money from the Italian restaurant owner, which we know he did because we were there, and is suspected of two murders. These murders are of women that he has briefly and professionally known in the past. He fits an FBI profile of the likely killer and has no alibi for either killing. Trouble has singled him out again. It's an adventure story and a whodunit, and also a view on modern America. This is a hard-edged story about a man who does not shrink from physical violence when he believes it to be called for and an author who does not shrink from describing it in some detail. However, Reacher is an essentially moral man with a keen sense of right and wrong, qualities which the book does not always ascribe to the FBI. It's read by Kerry Shale, who is a vastly experienced reader and radio performer who narrated a number of Bill Bryson's books, together with the award-winning recordings of Life of Pi and Slumdog Millionaire. He does a tremendous job here, voicing Reacher in just the way I would have hoped, and bringing variety to the myriad of other voices, together with an intelligent and sympathetic quality to the narrative. Listen to this snatch of the introduction. Life is full of decisions and it gets to the point where you're so accustomed to making them, you keep right on making them, even when you don't strictly need to. 
It was a habit Jack Reacher had in spades, which was why he was sitting alone at a restaurant table and gazing at the backs of two guys twenty feet away and wondering if it would be enough just to warn them off or if he would have to go the extra mile and break their arms. There are three CDs, all in good condition, though there is a slight glitch at the end of track three on disc two, which I think is an editing mistake. The recording lasts around three and a half hours. If you'd like to borrow this audiobook, let us know at Colin Chance House and we will send it to you as soon as it becomes available. In the meantime, whatever you're listening to and however you're listening to it, we wish you an enjoyable and rewarding time. Unlike recorded talking books, printed books require paper, and paper requires trees. Catherine? As an example of a beginning, you can't find a more hopeful one than the action of planting a tree. The planting of fruit trees inspires a sense of abundance and of circularity, from fruit pip to sapling, blossom to fruit. And of course, that's a symbolism with local power, living as we do in orchard country close to the Vale of Evesham. Indeed, the black pear is central to the city of Worcester's coat of arms and is echoed deliberately in street decorations and street names. The longevity of trees is a symbol not only of the future but also of life extending far beyond our own individual time. Again, there's an example here in Worcester. In Friar Street, an ancient yew overhanging the pavement from the courtyard of a shop is thought to have originally marked a plague graveyard just by or beyond the city wall. This symbol of an acorn, which will become a majestic oak tree, permeates many of our ideas about growth and potential. And I'm going to end by reading part of a fable about a man who planted trees. It was written by a Frenchman, Jean Giono, in the 1950s and originally published in Vogue magazine. As a young man in 1913, the narrator walked across the region of eastern France in that ancient region where the Alps thrust down into Provence. He writes, All this at the time I embarked upon my long walk through these deserted regions was barren and colourless land. Nothing grew there but wild lavender. The narrator meets and is given shelter by a shepherd. The shepherd went to fetch a small sack and poured out a heap of acorns on the table. He began to inspect them one by one with great concentration separating the good from the bad. I smoked my pipe. I did offer to help him. He told me that it was his job. And in fact, seeing the care he devoted to the task, I did not insist. That was the whole of our conversation. When he'd set aside a large enough pile of good acorns, he counted them out by tens, meanwhile eliminating the small ones or those which were slightly cracked. For now, he examined them more closely. When he had thus selected 100 perfect acorns, he stopped and we went to bed. There was peace in being with this man. The next day I asked if I might rest here for a day. He found it quite natural, or to be more exact, he gave me the impression that nothing could startle him. The rest was not absolutely necessary, but I was interested and wished to know more about him. He opened the pen and led his flock to pasture. Before leaving, he plunged his sack of carefully selected and counted acorns into a pail of water. 
I noticed that he carried for a stick an iron rod as thick as my thumb and about a yard and a half long. Resting myself by walking, I followed a path parallel to his. His pasture was in a valley. He left the dog in charge of the little flock and climbed toward where I stood. I was afraid that he was about to rebuke me for my indiscretion, but it was not that at all. This was the way he was going, and he invited me to go along, if I had nothing better to do. He climbed to the top of the ridge, about a hundred yards away. There he began thrusting his iron rod into the earth, making a hole in which he planted an acorn. Then he refilled the hole. He was planting oak trees. I asked him if the land belonged to him. He answered, no. Did he know whose it was? He did not. He supposed it was community property, or perhaps belonged to people who cared nothing about it. He was not interested in finding out whose it was. He planted his hundred acorns with the greatest care. After the midday meal, he resumed his planting. I suppose I must have been fairly insistent in my questioning, for he answered me. For three years, he'd been planting trees in this wilderness. He had planted 100,000. Of the 100,000, 20,000 had sprouted. Of the 20,000, he still expected to lose about half to rodents or to the unpredictable designs of providence. There remained 10,000 oak trees to grow where nothing had grown before. That was when I began to wonder about the age of this man. He was obviously over 50. 55, he told me. His name was Elziar Bouffier. He'd once had a farm in the lowlands. There he had had his life. He had lost his only son, then his wife. He had withdrawn into this solitude where his pleasure was to live leisurely with his lambs and his dog. It was his opinion that this land was dying for want of trees. He added that having no very pressing business of his own, he had resolved to remedy this state of affairs. As you can predict, the narrator on returning to the region just over 30 years later finds beautiful woodland that helps to regenerate the land and to bring back the communities who'd lived there since Roman times. Everything was changed, even the air. Instead of the harsh, dry winds that used to attack me, a gentle breeze was blowing, laden with scents. A sound like water came from the mountains. It was the wind in the forest. Most amazing of all, I heard the actual sound of water falling into a pool. I saw that a fountain had been built, that it flowed freely. And what touched me most, that someone had planted a linden beside it, a linden that must have been four years old, already in full leaf, the incontestable symbol of resurrection. In 1972, Philip Larkin had a less positive view of the future of the natural world in his poem, Going, Going. Phil. I thought it would last my time, the sense that beyond the town there would always be fields and farms where the village louts could climb such trees as were not cut down. I knew there'd be false alarms in the papers about old streets and split-level shopping, but some have always been left so far. When the old part retreats as the bleak high rises come, we can always escape in the car. Things are tougher than we are, just as Earth will always respond however we mess it about. Chuck filth in the sea if you must, the tides will be clean beyond. But what do I feel now? Doubt or age simply? 
The crowd is young in the M1 cafe. Their kids are screaming for more, more houses, more parking allowed, more caravan sites, more pay. On the business page, a score of spectacled grins approve some takeover bid that entails 5% profit and 10% more in the estuaries. Move your works to the unspoilt dales, grey area grants. And when you try to get near the sea in summer... It seems just now to be happening so very fast, despite all the land left free. For the first time, I feel somehow that it isn't going to last. That before I snuff it, the whole boiling will be bricked in, except for the tourist parts. First slum of Europe. A role it won't be hard to win with a cast of crooks and tarts. And that will be England gone. The shadows, the meadows, the lanes, the guild halls, the carved choirs. There'll be books. It will linger on in galleries. But all that remains for us will be concrete and tyres. Most things are never meant. This won't be most likely. But greeds and garbage are too thick-strewn to be swept up now or invent excuses that make all of them needs. I just think it will happen. Soon. Britain's countryside under the auctioneer's hammer. What magic do we need to halt the process? Be careful what you wish for. Catherine. One of the pieces of music that I remember from my childhood is The Sorcerer's Apprentice. It was played to me on gramophone records by my father. In his youth, he'd arranged gramophone concerts of classical music for his fellow soldiers, with whom he served in World War II. Presumably this was a favourite, or perhaps he just thought it would appeal to a six-year-old. And so, in one way, this is about the beginning of my love of classical music. The story of The Sorcerer's Apprentice is of how a magician or sorcerer leaves his young apprentice to do the chores, including fetching the water by pail. Fed up with doing it himself, the young boy works a spell to get a broom to do it for him. The room is soon awash with water. The apprentice cannot stop the broom. He tries to halt it by chopping it in two, but the broom just multiplies and continues to fetch the water. Things speed up until the room begins to flood. Eventually, the sorcerer returns to this scene of mayhem and breaks the spell. One of the morals of the story is that one should not run before one can walk, or perhaps more sternly, that the elder or teacher knows best. Perhaps rather mischievously, that's what my father was saying to me. He was also fond of saying wryly to me, do as I say, not as I do. At any rate, in thinking about beginnings and endings, this story and the music have come back to me. After a seemingly innocent beginning, it's a sequence of increasingly disastrous events, only brought to an end by the return of the parent figure, who might be cross, perhaps reassuring, who can both end the escalating disturbance and restore everything to its original calm. The source of the story 
is a 14 stanza poem by Goethe from 1797, but it comes from older folklore. Among numerous interpretations, there's an interestingly political one, namely that the inexperienced apprentice has summoned up forces or allies that he cannot control. Along these lines, Marx and Engels in the Communist Manifesto of 1848 relate modern bourgeois society to the sorcerer who is not able to control the powers of the netherworld whom he is called up by his spells. The symphonic poem of 1897, which has become the way most people encounter the tale, is the work of the French composer Paul Ducard. Lasting ten minutes or thereabouts, it begins with a single phrase played on the bassoon. All the instruments of the orchestra, including fantastic work from the glockenspiel, contribute to the repetition of the main phrase. The music speeds up and gathers volume, telling the story of the accelerating march of the brooms and the apprentice's increasing panic until, boom, the sorcerer returns. And so we come to part two of our audio playhouse. Lionel Billyfish has discovered a peculiar knack for predicting big news events. Is it true prophecy or is something else going on? As soon as the story appeared in the next edition of The Observer, Councillor Charles Thong resigned and left the area. The ceramic work shut down its kilns and went into liquidation. Lionel returned to his desk in the corner, but Fred Hackman's attitude to him had palpably changed. I hate to admit it, Billy Fish, but you did well there. A few more stories like that and this paper could start making a bit of a mark. Keep your ears open, Billy Fish. Keep your ears open. Lionel and Stan's old typewriter carried on documenting the mundane affairs of the town. He learned from a conversation overheard in the chip shop one day that Plankton's football club, the Drifters, were faced with relegation. But he wrote instead an upbeat article about how good they really were. Against all odds, and much to Lionel's surprise, the Drifters did actually win that weekend and started to climb up the table. He noticed other small surprises, a proposed housing estate that threatened the rural views from his parents' house, failed to get past the planning committee after Lionel had written a completely fictitious piece about how the land was liable to subsidence and flooding, quoting the evidence of several non-existent experts. The surprise was that within two months of the article's publication, three sinkholes had appeared, and in the November, thanks to some diverting work done further downstream, the river plank had burst its banks and inundated the whole area. But Fred Hackman did not hide his disappointment that his protégé had come up with no really big stories since the ceramic works closure. Eye on the ball, Billy Fish, eye on the ball. We need a good story, something to boost the spirit of this godforsaken town. Lionel's own family were not unaffected by the closure of the ceramic works. His two cousins had both worked there as potters and his aunt had been a receptionist. His father ran a haulage firm whose biggest contract was with the company. 
things were getting tight and the townsfolk ever more miserable. So Lionel wrote an optimistic article for the paper about the totally unfounded prospect of an American energy company coming to the area and the possible creation of hundreds of jobs. Although fiction, the article produced the intended effect and a certain lightness entered people's conversations on the street and in the supermarket. But Lionel worried that it was all a sham and that there was no energy company thinking of starting operations in Dorset as far as he knew and that if that came to light, he'd be in trouble again. Fred Hackman breezed through the newsroom and tossed a copy of the Daily Mail onto Lionel's desk. Well done, Billy Fish. I don't know where you got that information, but the Nationals have picked up your Nucron piece. Quite a coup for the Observer. Hackman sailed into his office, leaving a bemused Lionel staring at the headline on one of the biggest-selling newspapers in the United Kingdom. Power to the West Country. Nucron Energy to build new plant in Dorsetshire countryside. Oh no, Nucron doesn't exist. I made it up. Hold on, I didn't write any of this. Company history? Directors' names? Nucron USA, fast becoming the world leader in nuclear technology, has spearheaded new developments in the refining process. They really exist? And they're coming here. If Brian Collum was impressed with Lionel's apparent new sense, he didn't show it. Instead, he redoubled his efforts to make fun of him. He even fed Lionel a fake news idea of his own, which resulted in ace reporter Nellie Billyfish, dressed in full hazard suit, fishing frogs out of the town fountain during the mayor's speech on Remembrance Sunday. Not realising that he'd been set up by Colum, Lionel duly took to his typewriter and wrote up the story. The following week, the frogs were indeed discovered to be radioactive and the town fountain and war memorial were hastily removed. The news scoops continued and the Plankton Observer began to be recognised as a major source of breaking, often sensational news. Circulation improved beyond Fred Hackman's dreams. Money from advertisers and grateful news agencies came flooding in. As time went on, Lionel's mind often drifted back to the time he found Stan's old typewriter and the scrap of paper that had been jamming the roller. The scrap itself was long since gone, but he still remembered the words written on it. Be careful what you type. Many lies are written as truth. Many truths are written as lies. Many lies become truth. That's so true. That's how it is. I write lies and they become real. No matter what I write, what I type. I wonder what Stan meant when he typed that. Stan, my lovely, you've got a visitor. Uh, Mr Billyfish. Uh, you remember him, don't you? From the newspaper? 
Stan Forward was not in a good way. His lungs had just about given up. The result, Lionel concluded, of over 50 years of chain smoking. Oh, is that young Lionel? How you doing, boy? I hear the papers on a bit of a roll these days. I always knew you'd do well. Yes, we've had some good breaks. What about you, Stan? Oh, I'm fine. How's everyone? That tricky Herbert Collum, is he still playing his old games? You want to watch him, you know, Sam? Lionel reminisced with Stan for ten minutes or so. Then he got to the point. (laughs) (laughs) Sam? You know your old typewriter you left at the office when you retired? Your old Amoretti? Do you remember the paper that was stuck in it? Typewriter? It had some writing on. Uh, Did you type that, Stan? No. It was a bit cryptic, but very true. What did it mean? Do you remember? I, I didn't leave a typewriter. Yeah, it said to be careful what you type. That, um, what was it? That, that lies become truth. Do you, do you remember that? No. No, I took my typewriter home when I left work. It's, it's not at the office. Oh, I had it here for a while. It might still be in that cupboard. You've got your Amaretti here. What are you talking about? An Amaretti's a biscuit, not a typewriter. Have a look. Is it there? Well, there's a typewriter, all right. Uh, Remington. Ah, that's it. My old Remington. Do you want to borrow it? No, Stan, no. No, you're all right. Uh, (coughs) So, what's the old machine I found at the plank, then? I've no idea, son. (coughs) But (coughs) whatever it is, it's, (coughs) it's not mine. First edition on Wednesday. Okay, thank you. Bye. Heather, you remember Stan's old typewriter? That ancient Remington of his. Older even than Stan himself, I reckon. What about it? Now, you say it's a Remington, not an Amoretti. Amoretti's a biscuit. That's what Stan said. He didn't leave it here, did he? The Remington? No. Why would he? It's his own personal property. Plankton Observer, one moment, please. I'll check the diary. The 25th at 2.30. Right ho, Mrs Dreyfus. Mr Hagman will speak to you then. Look, Amoretti. All right, then. Goodbye. Oh, that one. You recognise it? Um, yes. And? Brian Collum bought that in ages ago. Um, he said he got it as a joke. Like, it wasn't a proper typewriter. It didn't work or or would take someone a long time to make it work. A joke? Mmm. On on you. On me? Just a bit of fun, you know. He said he'd found it in a junk shop, that one next to the dry cleaners in Hurst Street. Funny little foreign man runs it. Wears a dried salamander around his neck, Brian said. He told Brian it had special features. The typewriter, that is, not the salamander. No, no, it wasn't features. It had powers, he said. Special powers? Brian thought you... Well, he was just having a laugh, Lionel. He didn't think you'd be able to do anything with it. But I can see that you... Oh, yes, so it is. Amaretti. Ha! Not a biscuit at all. Hmm. More like a lemon. Special powers? A mysterious machine from an even more mysterious shopkeeper? A typewriter that makes anything you type come true? 
Lionel thought he should turn the idea into a novel, but instead he settled himself at his corner desk and typed a story congratulating Brian Collum on his forthcoming appointment to the illustrious Punch magazine in far-off London. He also wrote a short paragraph documenting the remarkable return to health of the former Observer reporter Stan Forward. Then he tidied his desk and left for a fortnight's holiday in Brighton. Lying on the beach, Lionel thought a lot about the Amoretti and the possibility that maybe it really could do what it really seemed it could do. OK, let's give you a big project, see what happens. Something for the benefit of mankind. Save the Amazon rainforest. I can't do that, I've got no Zed. Save the elephants. Save the environment. Hmm, it's not bad. Save the planet. That's it. Global warming. Climate change. Let's see if you can fix that. He started to compose a piece in his head, there and then, sitting on the beach, for publication in the Plankton Observer, to save the planet. Global warming reversed. Climate change to stabilise in two years. He'd write it as soon as he got back from holiday. Lionel actually cut short his vacation by a couple of days. He couldn't wait any longer to put his plan into action. At eight o'clock on the Monday morning, he strode through the observer's door, which Heather Bruce had only just unlocked. Hello, Lionel. Welcome back. You're early. Got a big story to write, Mrs B. As soon as he entered the newsroom, he realised that everything was different. New furniture, new carpet, the smell of fresh paint. Do you like it? It's splendid, Heather. What is all this? Well, the paper's been doing so well this last year, thanks to you mostly. Mr Hackman thought it was time we entered the 20th century properly, so we've had a complete overhaul of the office. New desks, new filing system and, look, computers, word processors. What do you think? Word processors? Make your life a lot easier, I should think. Just type on the computer and it prints it all out for you automatically. Straight away. No spelling mistakes, no messy alterations, no carbon paper. That's wonderful, Heather. I think there's still a place for the old way, though, as well, don't you? Mr Billyfish, I didn't know you were such an old stick in the mud. No, they're great. I've had mine only a week and I love it. Well, I've got one last thing to do on the old machine. You've got a new desk, see? And your new keyboard and screen. Look! And where is... The central processing unit. I've got all the jargon. The CPU underneath. Look. No, no, I, I didn't mean the central thing. My typewriter. Where's my typewriter? Is it in the storeroom? Oh, no. Mr Hackman had all the old stuff thrown out. We had a big skip for it all. Everything was cleared out on Tuesday last. And on the Wednesday, all these marvels suddenly appeared. But that was my typewriter. Well, well, all right, it wasn't exactly mine, but I've been using it for the last nearly two years. What do you think, eh, Billy Fish? Well, actually, Mr Hackman... Progress, Billy Fish, progress. At last, the Plankton Observer can take its rightful place in the newspaper universe. 
We've arrived, Billy Fish. The Plankton Observer has finally arrived. The following day, Lionel Billyfish left. That was the weather and the latest news read by Barbara Crumble. It's five past nine and this is The Book Review with my guest this week, Lionel Billyfish. Lionel, you were telling us about why you left the Plankton Observer. What happened then? Well, after that, the old plank kind of faded away. And they didn't have any more scoops, I'm afraid. Circulation dwindled. Advertisers got scarce. The national newspapers lost interest. Old Stan went back there for a few weeks, you know. Hmm. His health was much better. But he, he didn't get on with the new computers. I think he went back into retirement. And, of course, Punch closed a couple of months after... Hey, yes. It's always felt a bit bad about that. I never wanted to put anyone out of work. I just wanted to have the, the, the space, you know, to be me. You've done well since. Another lucky break, I suppose. I went back to Brighton, and that's where I first had the idea of writing the story, and... And the rest will be history. <laughs> Let's hope so. So, Lionel Billyfish, Nell, congratulations on your first novel. Can't wait for the next. Thank you. I've been talking to novelist Lionel Billyfish, whose first book has just won Novel of the Year. Entitled Not Just a Biscuit, it's published by the Wealdon Press, and you can find it in all good bookshops. Next week I shall be talking to Dr Mucus Porringer about his bestseller, The Dung Beetle. But until then, this is Brian Collum signing off for the book review. Bye-bye. In John Stanbury's Making the News, Lionel's mum was played by Evelyn Brock and his dad by Stephen Buckley. Barney Burnham was Fred Hackman, while Mark Devlin played Brian Collum and our own Jane Fairs here played Heather Bruce. Stand Forward was played by Martin Bourne and the narrator was Jane Lush. Other parts were played by members of the Talking Newspaper. Making the News was produced and directed in our studio here by John Plush. And that brings us to the ending of this special Endings and Beginnings edition of Look Here. So with thanks to Carol Hartle and her team for administration and to David and Sylvia Day for copying, it's time to say goodbye from Catherine. Goodbye. From Phil. Goodbye. And from Jane. Goodbye. We began this magazine with a poem and we're going to end with one too. This piece was written by the 19th century African-American poet... Paul Lawrence Dunbar, and seems particularly appropriate for this moment in history where we bid a fond farewell to Queen Elizabeth II and look forward to the reign of King Charles III. John Plush reads The Change Has Come by Paul Lawrence Dunbar. The change has come, and Helen sleeps, not sleeps, but wakes to greater deep of wisdom, glory, truth and light than ever blessed her seeking sight in this long, low, lethargic night worn out with strife which men call life. The change has come and who would say I would it were not come today? What were the respite till tomorrow? Postponement of a certain sorrow from which each passing day would borrow. Let grief be dumb the change has come. From me, Pippa Curtis. Goodbye. <laughs>